everybody, and welcome to Firehouse Talk, a new name for this podcast that more accurately reflects the direction we seem to be going as this still new project continues to evolve. What follows today is a conversation with retired Fire Department Captain Pat Murphy. Pat grew up right here in Pleasant Grove in southeast Dallas, where he attended Grady Spruce High School. He went on to work 40 years for the Dallas Fire Department, retiring as a highly respected captain who won multiple awards for his distinguished service. I wanted to document the story of his exemplary career, so I asked Pat to join me, Mike Otto, and Mike Hoskins to talk about his career. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation as much as I did. But first, I want to dedicate this episode of Firehouse Talk to a great tailboard man we recently lost, Mike Hiles. Mike always had a smile and a story for everyone, so in his honor, I in turn want to share a story he once told me. I had recently been assigned to a new fire station, and Mike told me he knew a fellow at that station named Beauregard. Now, as a side note, you should know that, like always, I'm changing the name to protect the guilty party. But anyway, Mike told me that Beauregard asked him to put in a set of French double doors at his house. Mike told Beauregard that if he would measure the opening, then he'd order the door, and when it arrived, he'd come over and install it for him, and Beauregard agreed. But, Mikey warned, the measurement had to be exact, down to one-eighth of an inch. Beauregard agreed and assured him he would measure very carefully. So, after he had received the measurements from Beauregard, Mikey ordered the door, And when it came in, he went out to install it and found that Beauregard had indeed measured the door opening, and it was exactly, exactly, down to one-eighth of an inch, exactly one foot off from the correct measurement. Rest easy, Mikey, in that land where the nails are straight, the wood never splits, and everything always fits just so. And now, without further ado, here's our conversation with Pat Murphy. Okay, hello everybody and welcome to Firehouse Talk. I'm here today with my co-host, retired Fire Department Lieutenant Mike Otto. Hello, everybody. Hey, Mike. Welcome. We also have a special guest here today, Pat Murphy. Glad to be here. Thanks for coming. And uh, we also have another guest joining us today, Mike Hoskins, retired uh, police department. And some of you may know him from having seen him at many fires. He is a volunteer with 896. Good morning. Hey, Mike. Well, Pat, um, how did you come to uh, get on the fire department? What made you want to be a Dallas fireman? Two things. Football and George Barry Smith. Really? When I graduated from high school, just about a year after I got out of high school, I missed playing football so bad. And they had an ad in the Dallas Morning News about the semi-pro team was looking for new recruits and stuff. And they had tryouts right across the street from 19s before I ever even knew what 19s was. But anyway, I went and tried out for this semi-pro football team, got lucky, made the team. <clears throat> well, Barry Smith was already on this football team. It had been going on for two or three years. Anyway, when I got on there, the, Barry and I, just we just hit it off for some reason, just boom, right off the bat. And the more he talked about the Dallas Fire Department, the more I thought, man, that's what I want to do. He explained to me the process of going through this and that and the other, and I went down, signed up, and got lucky and got on. Was there an interview board that you had to go through? 
Uh, I, I remember talking to some people. Uh, the, the thing I remember most about it, the process, was when it went down, was the physical. Ah. The, the doctor physical. Yep, yep. And uh, I went in his office, and I thought he was probably three days older than Jesus Christ. He, I mean, he just... <laughs> And we're, we're going through, he checked this, he checked that. And uh, at one point in the deal, I'm buck naked standing there in his office. And, and he tells me to bend over and touch my toes. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I don't know about that. I don't know what's coming on here. So I, I you know, I thought, well, I, but I, you know, I wanted a job. So I yep. did yep. bend over, touch my toes. And I kind of looked at him with a funny look. He said, I'm just checking the curvature of your spine, make sure it's not out of line. I thought, oh, thank goodness for that. But anyway, and then just before I walked out the door, he said, son, let me see your hands. And I stuck my hands out there. He said, no, the other side. I turned them over. He said, you bite your fingernails. You chew your fingernails a bit. And I said, well, yeah, it's just, just a habit of mine. He said, I'll tell you what. He said, you might be a little bit too nervous for this job. He said, if you really want this job, you come back, see me in 30 days and have some fingernails. Is that right? That is the true story. And wow. I waited 30 wow. days and went back and he said, okay, you did good. So, <laughs> I thought, I thought, I thought, damnedest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. Well, be, well, I, well, both of those things were the damnedest thing I've ever heard. But anyway, it, it worked out for me. Gosh almighty. So uh, then you ended up going to rookie school, I guess. What was rookie school like? Rookie school... I really enjoyed rookie school. It was, of course, this was out at Record Crossing. Okay. At the drill tower out there. Uh, Jack Livingston was one of our major people out there, Chief Livingston. Uh, Mickey Ferguson was one of my instructors. Ralph Lack was one of my instructors. And, of course, you would meet up with Captain Lack again later, uh, which we'll come to after a while. Yes. Sir. About what year would this have been when you came out of rookie school? 1968. 68. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, sling pack SCBAs at that time or any SCBAs? Well, they had some sling packs, but not everybody had one. Okay. Uh, it was, it was different. I mean, yeah. No walkie talkies. Yeah. Uh, uh probably uh, cotton gloves. Oh, yeah. Cotton garden, garden gloves, little Maddie Mattel plastic helmet, hmm. uh, canvas coat. Yeah. Pull up rubber boots. Uh, not a lot of protection. It was, it was different. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no hoods. Yeah. So you were at 24s until then you promoted or went to paramedic school or how or what? Uh, I worked at old 24s, 24s? Uh, mm-hmm. for like two and a half years. Then they built the new 24s, or okay. Fort yep. Hatcher, they call yep. it. Yeah. Uh, I worked over there for a couple of years. Then when we went into EMS, mm-hmm. uh, I volunteered for EMT school. And were you in one of the first EMT classes? I was in the fourth EMT class, okay. the first paramedic but class. But the first paramedic class. Right. Okay. So you probably didn't have to go to paramedic school. Did you volunteer for that to make driver like some people did? Or or what was the impetus for you going to paramedic school? I just thought it'd be neat. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, most of the people back mm-hmm. in the day, it's, it's my understanding that probably, um, I think over 90% of the, the first people that started our EMS mm-hmm. system we're all volunteers. Is that right? Yeah. That's what my understanding is. Some of them might say, no, I didn't volunteer. But yeah. I think the initial group, yeah. most of them were volunteers. Yeah. What was that like? It's very interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. The uh, the officers, Bill Roberts and Troy England and mm-hmm. some of the people that were trying to get our program up and running, 
they did a lot of research, a lot of traveling, a lot of legwork, and they wanted to really start us off with a really, really good program. And I think for a while there, Dallas probably had, and probably still does have one of the best EMS systems in the country. Hey, I'm curious. Um, you know, today our ambulances run, our rescues run constantly. You know, they're, they're making calls all for the 24 hours. They're just very, very busy. But I know that that evolved over the years. How busy? Do you remember how busy were you back in 1972 when you got? Or? I, I'll tell you what they told us when we started. Okay. They said they were looking for volunteers. They said, all right, we're going to set up this system. We're going to start off with, I believe it was like 14 ambulances. The busy ones, the busy ones are going to make seven or eight runs a shift. The other ones, well, all right. Prior to us taking over the EMS system, the funeral homes in Dallas right. did the ambulance service. And basically, it was geographic. If you were in Oak Cliff, you got this unit. If you were in North Dallas, you got Sparkman Hillcrest. If you were in South Dallas, you got Black and Clark. You know, And they did that the last year. Chief Roberts, Bill Roberts, he did some studies and research, and he found out that the last year that the funeral homes had the ambulance service, they had about 25,000 calls in that year. <clears throat> so... He figured, well, when the fire department takes over, we're going to kick it up a notch. And they estimated we were going to make 28000 the first year we were in service. Well, the first full year we were in service, it went from 25000 estimated to go to 28000 actually went to 43000 Wow! calls <laughs> that, that first year. Yeah. yeah. So we started off behind and never caught up. That, that's right. why they're still so busy. And they just kept adding units and units and units and of course, the city get bigger and bigger and bigger. And initially, uh, I think a lot of the the initial impact was the fact that a lot of people assumed, well, it's the fire department. It's free. Let's call them. And, and I'm talking, uh, did you call 911? Yeah. Could you y'all take me down to the pharmacy and get this prescription filled? You know, <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah. Really? And that, that actually happens. Like that. Well, that maybe that was what led to the call screening that ended up. Being instituted probably in the early 80s or late 70s, I would guess. I, I think the call screening was going to do us some good until uh, the Boff incident. Yeah. The, the Boff incident, yeah. Well, that's uh, when it just completely went away. Yeah, it went that away. That's yeah. Exactly, yeah I, I was kind of wishing they could have kept it because uh, mm-hmm. I thought it was good. You know, just to weed out some of this stuff. Now, we, they did some public relations stuff to try to – to uh, educate the public as to what we're really for, you know, true emergencies right. and other, but uh, it worked a little bit. Not uh, like I said, we, we, we started off behind and we still are. Well, I noticed when they eliminated that after the boff incident, I kind of followed the stats for a few mm-hmm. years and we were jumping at 10,000 runs a shift or a year yeah. annually for a pretty regular basis. I don't know how many years, uh, but 10,000 a year about we were jumping after the call screening program was eliminated down at the alarm office. Yeah, it was so, pretty much calling. We'll send. Yes, that's what it be. Yes, yeah. that's what it became. Yeah. I want to take a little break here to go into greater detail about this Boff incident we we're talking about because it really was a huge deal. And we still feel its ramifications today because, as Mike Otto mentioned, it resulted in the end of call screening. So what happened? 
On January 5, 1984, Mr. Larry Boff called to request an ambulance for his mother, Lillian Boff. When the call came into the call center, it was transferred to a call screening nurse. These were registered nurses who were employed for their medical expertise so they could screen out calls that did not require the advanced life support capabilities of a fire department mobile intensive care unit, as opposed to a private ambulance service. Nurse Billy Myrick took the call and was asking the caller the routine questions. The caller became impatient with the questions, as often happens on 911 calls, and Ms. Myrick responded negatively. As it turned out, there would be an eight-minute delay before Ambulance 753 was dispatched, and when 753 arrived on the scene, Ms. Lillian Boff was dead. Clarice Tinsley, a local news anchor, broke the story, and soon it was all over the national news. It was all the media talked about for a good while, and people all over the country were directing their vitriol at Dallas. I don't think that the city of Dallas had had this much national hatred directed at it since Kennedy was shot here 20 years earlier. Some commentators even referred back to the Kennedy assassination when castigating us regarding this incident. Call screening was halted as a result, and the era of you call, we haul began. It set in motion a sort of mission creep that would eventually find us rolling heavy apparatus down the streets with lights and sirens blaring to patients who had simply stubbed their toe or suffered similarly minor mishaps. We'll do a deep dive on this incident and on the continued mission creep that we have suffered since in a future episode, but for now, let's get back to our discussion with Pat Murphy. Well, back in the day, so um, you come out of paramedic school, and where did you go ride an ambulance? Uh, there, that was at 44. Oh, at 44. Yeah, that's at 44 right. okay. uh, yeah. was my when – when we initially started, mm-hmm. we we had very few EMT. We had, just had enough EMTs to yeah. go around, and uh, they assigned three people at – three uh, EMTs at the station. Okay. I, I'm, <laughs> so did you just have one paramedic uh, well, and one EMT we riding EMT. together? Well, that oh, initially, later on. Okay, initially, initially it was, it was like, two EMTs on the two ambulance. two EMTs on there. Okay, okay. We had three EMTs assigned to the station, okay, uh, so they could rotate a little bit. But <laughs> most of the most of the officers, they this EMS stuff was new, right? And most of them was like, "You got it, you guys, you, you yeah. EMTs have got it. You'll do whatever you need to do, and that's it." You know, kind of that one kind of. Uh, so we were so short-handed that yeah. the first, the first three and a half, maybe four years yeah. that I rode, yeah. It was pretty much all. So you were pretty much all, on the ambulance every all shift. All ambulance, nearly every shift. Yeah. Okay. And uh, that that kind of started leading up to they're going to realize that this burnout factor might have been a little bit right. worse than they right. anticipated. Right. Because nearly everybody was riding it nearly all the time. I think I rode yeah. the engine three or four times in three years. Good grief. Yeah. So did you have, um, in your career in the fire service, uh, any officers that uh, mentored you and helped bring you along, or were you pretty much thrown in the briar patch to figure things out for yourself? 
I wouldn't call it a briar patch. I mm-hmm. I felt like like every other rookie back back in the day. Now this was pretty good ways back in the day. Yeah, and things were different back then. Uh, I was actually they were taking care of me. They were teaching me things, mm-hmm. but I didn't really realize it for a while because of all the agitation. I mean, you <laughs> felt like you were lower yeah. than whale poop. You <laughs> you couldn't do anything right. You know the yep. You're like a monkey messing with a football and all that kind of stuff. It just, uh, you, I, I didn't feel like they wanted to run me off, but I yeah. didn't feel like I was really part of the team. Yeah. But later on in, in my career, I realized this guy, that guy, those people, that crew. Yeah. You know, if they're not agitating you, they don't like you. So I, I got agitated right. quite a bit. <laughs> Everything worked out good for me. But as far as anybody, any individual, just, uh, Helping me out, picking me up, and helping me spread my wings and stuff. I don't recall individuals. It was just teamwork. And but again, I I didn't think I was doing that good because of all the agitation and stuff. Uh, it, I, hey, it, it it came to pass. It worked out great. It's a different culture. Oh, it is. You know. <laughs> now, there was a time I believe in the seventies when uh, you were um, possibly working with maybe uh, a detail out of this station or near here, and you answered a call across the street at the fairgrounds when there was an incident involving the gondola. Is that correct? Yes. The Swiss Skyride? Swiss Skyride, yeah. That was a— Tell me about that. October 21st, 1979. Okay. The last day of the fair. Okay. They had decided—now, this station, uh, or 05's— was no longer a functional station at the time. Okay. So what they did, they put an engine crew here with three paramedics on it. And all we responded to was Fair Park. I was fortunate enough to be on it for two ship, two years in a row. Uh, and at, at, we were engine 61 sitting at the station. But if we went out on a fire call, we were engine uh, 61. If we went out on EMS call, we were 761. Okay. And we only responded to the fairgrounds. And we were the first on location of that uh, cable car incident. What had happened that uh, – what was the problem there? I, when I saw the picture, there was a, a gentleman walking down the midway and was going to take a picture of the guy. And he just – when he mm-hmm. snapped a picture, two of the cars had already were in the process of falling. Oh, okay. Uh, and I, every time I looked at that, I thought, how in the heck did – that car hit that car, and then that car mm. hit that car, and these two cars fall. Yeah. And, I, and I was, you know, why didn't the whole thing fall? I couldn't figure yeah. it out. But when we pulled up, mm-hmm. we had, I believe, well, we had 16 or 17 people mm-hmm. injured, uh, had one fatality, mm-hmm. uh, called for a couple of extra ambulances. And then I believe Chief Steve Perry, I think Chief Perry was kind of in charge. Okay. Uh, I was still fairly young on the fire department. Well, not that young, but there was a lot of commotion going on. And I mean, they were, you know, like this cable car ran the entire length of the fairgrounds. They had to get. So you got a very chaotic scene. Exactly. You've got 16 or 17 people on the ground. Mm -hmm. We got what we found out later on was 85 people still Mm -hmm. up in the gondolas from one end of the fair to the other uh, and had to take care of these people. Take care yeah. of those people up there. Yeah, you got a very big incident. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, it was. Uh, I mean, they. It was. They had to tear down the the, the tents. Mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. And actually they, move things in order for the trucks to get they had in. To cut down some of the beautiful right. trees that were down along the midway yeah. to get. Uh, they had a couple of snorkel 
trucks. They had a couple of 100-foot aerials. And uh, Here's the part that would seem difficult to me is um, trying to reach those people with that aerial and convincing someone to step out of the gondola and on to the ladder. It, it was uh, interesting, to say the least. I actually was only up on the top of one of the the hundred foot aerials mm-hmm. to bring a couple of people down. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just had to hope that they could you could <laughs> gain their trust and their, yeah. they could trust you and everything. Yeah, it, it was uh, the and some of the incidents uh, they had uh, some of the gondolas had stopped over the automobile building and one mm-hmm. of the other building, mm-hmm. and I. Uh, I had heard that they had to do a church raise, but I'm not really sure about mm-hmm, that. To, to mm-hmm. get to, but I did read something mm-hmm. that they had to take a 16 foot ladder and hook it on the gondola, and two guys at the bottom were holding it. Well, somebody went up there and convinced them to climb down this ladder, <laughs> and the more people that got off the gondola, the higher the 16 foot ladder oh, got off the ground. Right, the right, cable, right. It lost, I mean, it was that was probably pretty interesting too. <laughs> wow, but uh, it, it was it was. Uh, I mean, I'll I, I never, I'll remember it like it was yesterday, most of it, but it was, I don't know how many hours we were out there, and it seemed like we were there 30 or 40 minutes, but it was... Uh, I would think it would take a lot of hours to... Oh, it, it to, did, yeah. it did, and to get everybody down and... Uh, to give the uh, listener a little bit better idea of what that all was about, that gondola, you know, they were, what did they probably hold, four people? They were, yeah, uh, yeah it, they were a little it, enclosed, open, it, open yeah. air, but... But enclosed on cables that ran at Fair Park, and how high off of the ground were they? Designed? Eighty-five foot. Eighty-five feet. Yeah. So that's a substantial wow. distance, uh, you know, that you guys are having to go up and to get to these people. Yeah. I mean, based on most of the part that I was involved in, I guarantee you, nearly everybody up there thought this whole thing's going to fall. It's mm. going to fall. Any minute, we, yeah. When we'd tell right. them, well, if if you if you feel better, just sit on the very floor where you can't see out and you can you'd be more protected. So, and we said it's going to be a while, but we're going to get you down, and that that's the right. best we could do. So, did the the gondola course or whatever did it encompass most of Fair Park? In other words, would this tool you all the way around the fairgrounds, it and so you from, had cars in different locations that were stranded. No, it basically went from Big Tech's back to the wild mouse or back to the roller coaster the length of the okay. midway right down the middle of the midway okay and matter of fact the baskets fell on some of the the games and stuff there and uh it, it's it's my understanding one of them stuck another one hit it then when the third one hit two of them fell mm. and landed on top of one of the tents and of course went through it and everything right but, uh, mm. quite an incident it I'm was sure. it yeah. was I, I, more than mm-hmm. more than one time when the individuals finally got to the ground, mm-hmm. that's when they had this release. I mean, they they'd break down crying. Yeah. They would they'd be hugging everybody. It was <laughs> it, it was some of it was good to see. Some of yeah. it was really tough, to, you know. But, I'll bet. Uh, but fortunately, yeah. like I said, we had one fatality and everything. That was very unfortunate. But overall, it could have been a nightmare worse than it was. Speaking of incidents that had to have a lot of emotional impact, as a paramedic, you once answered a fire at the Athena, and I believe there was somebody there who you mentioned had been at rookie school, a Captain Lack. Is that correct? That's correct. And um, 
why don't you tell me about the Athena fire and your response to the Athena? Okay. Uh, as we were expanding and adding MICUs to the, the city, mm-hmm. uh, they decided they wanted to put a, an ambulance at uh, Station 3. Mm-hmm. They put one there in November of 1975, and I, I'd written a letter to go over there because I thought it'd be a really neat station to work at. It'd be a busy station. I always like to try to stay busy. Uh, so we went over and my partner at that time, one of my partners, but the driver was a gentleman named Kenneth Coase, uh, a big stocky, burly guy from Twig, Minnesota. <laughs> I loved his accent. We had, we, we, we were a good team and stuff. Well, when the Athena fire came in, it went to a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth, uh, and we're sitting there at threes thinking, man, what have they got up there? What are they doing? Of course, we were kind of listening to scanners and stuff, and we knew that they had uh, dispatched several MICUs for smoke inhalations and this and that and the other. But late into the incident, uh, 660, the fire dispatch came over, and they said 756 and 703 respond to the Athena fire. And... We took off. Ken was driving on it, and we had a brand new unit. You know, anyway, he put his foot in the carburetor, and we we got up there pretty rapidly and stuff. Well, when we pulled up, uh, R.G. Russell was the uh, instant commander at the time, and he said, "Murph," he said, "You and Ken come on." He said, "Let these guys bring your equipment." So we go up to I think it was the fourteenth floor, mm-hmm. and we go into First, we get into the hallway that looked like a a chimney flue. I mean, it was it was burnt from ceiling to floor, mm-hmm. wall to wall, long, long hallway. We go down this hallway, and I'm thinking, my gosh, they had their hands full. Somebody had their hands full here. Anyway, we get down, we get to the apartment. That Chief Russell wanted us to go in, and he, he said this downstairs. He said, these guys will grab your equipment. We got two firefighters upstairs in bad shape. Mm-hmm. And, boy, that got... Thump, thump, thump. We get up there, we go into the apartment, go into a, a, a room, go into a second room, and go back into a third room in this uh, apartment. And there's probably four or five firefighters already there. But as soon as we walk in, the two of them are, are down right there in front of us. Uh, they were doing something to this, to Riley Hurst. They were mm-hmm. working on Riley. Mm-hmm. So I knelt down, Ken jumped down, and that's when I realized it was Ralph Lack, who was my lieutenant instructor mm. in rookie school. Mm. And I'm thinking, so anyway, we, we start working them, and to make a long story short, we worked them, worked them, worked them, got enough people, we got them down the stairs, got them into the unit, worked them all the way to Parkland, and worked them about 45 minutes after we got to Parkland. And Ralph had some ventricular beats or what they call PEA, mm-hmm. pulseless electrical activity, on the monitor that looked picture perfect, but there weren't very many of them. Mm. And we kept thinking, come on, Ralph, come on, Ralph, you're going to kick in, you're going to kick in. But after about 45 minutes at Parkland, they, they called it and everything. And I, that just, I mean, I, was, I could think back about some of the, Ralph was a southern country boy from Starkville, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Had a really interesting uh, voice and 
uh, tone and his attitude. And I just, I just, I just really liked the man. He, he was really good to us. He wasn't one of these, you know, really gruff and rough and treat rookies like, you know, what he, he wasn't that way. He, he was just a good man. And that incident was, it still sticks with me pretty good. Um, the Athena itself mm -hmm. thought, you know, just to kind of address it for the yeah. listener, you know, was built, I believe, back in the 60s. It was one of, uh, was one of Dallas's first high rise residential condominium type uh -huh. setups. And, uh, and it still sits today on, uh, West Northwest Highway mm -hmm. on the north side of the road between, Hillcrest and Preston Road, and uh, I can't drive by it to this day without looking at the Athena and just yeah. seeing the words and knowing that Captain Ralph Lack and Riley Hurst, you know, uh, perished on the 14th floor, you know. Yeah, and I, I would I would venture to say that probably most citizens of Dallas that drive along Northwest Highway every day have no idea. Oh, I, I would agree, yeah. yeah. It was a very elite complex. I mean, they were city council members there. Mm -hmm. They were judges there. Uh, it's my understanding there was a retired uh, military general that lived there. Uh, very classy place. Well, you would, that would explain you know. the size of the unit. Exactly. You know, to going yeah. into a condominium <laughs> and having, you know, yeah. three-bedroom condominiums, uh, high-rise in the, in the 60s, that's substantial. That yeah. is. So you touched on something I want to ask about, and that's uh, – the ability to get lost or disoriented when you don't have a hose line. And since I've got a few firefighters here, uh, Mike, have you ever been uh, lost or disoriented in a oh. building uh, uh, when you didn't have a hose line? I mean, yes. actually, beside, well, we've already discussed one of your incidents in another episode. Right. But, I mean, that probably was not the only time that you've been lost in a building, or was it? Certainly. Yeah, yeah. no, it wasn't the only yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, that's not a good feeling. And I, yeah. as I listened to Pat tell the story mm -hmm. about uh, – um, uh, you know, Captain Lack and, and Riley, um, I was visualizing it, you know, and, yeah. and how, um, that would have felt wandering through a space where you can't see your hand in front of your face and you know, the environment around you is nothing but toxic air, which is what, you know, what you saw when you intubated him and you saw the soot and that's, that was yeah. a byproduct of the, the smoke and you described the hallway and, uh, I can, you know, I can only, imagine but but i can imagine it pretty probably pretty closely because of past experiences and it's not a good feeling you know when you it is not it <laughs> when is it's not. like how am i gonna get out of here <laughs> and, uh, uh pat uh what about you have you uh had that experience of being uh lost or disoriented uh in a fire when you didn't have a hose line to follow out uh, a couple of times then yeah. uh sometimes it's because you've been asked to go do, do something and I remember one time, I don't know, I, I just brought it upon myself to go check this warehouse, blah, 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 blah. And the Cardinal saying I didn't have a partner. But I'm I'm wandering around back then. Finally, I got back so far that I wasn't finding what I thought I might find. And then I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, where in the hell am I? I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't see anything. In this warehouse, it's not one of those deals where you put a shoulder on the wall and walk through it. I was just wandering through this, gig this big space. And I got back there, and I thought for a minute, and, I, and my, my heart was kind of thumping a little bit hard. And I thought, that wasn't very smart of me <laughs> to, to get back there without somebody or without a line. Yeah. And that kind of – I think that that was probably the last time I did that on yeah. purpose. Was, yeah. so. I think we – certainly uh, as, as incidents escalate, you know, mm -hmm. we, we go in when we have visibility. 
you know, and we're not thinking about le- leaving, uh, you know, a breadcrumb trail to get ourselves out, you know, and then de- de- conditions True. deteriorate and uh, the smoke, you know, uh, becomes trapped and heavier and it's, you know, it hits the ceiling and then it starts banking down. And the next thing you know, you have no visibility. And what was easy a minute ago to walk into is impossible now to walk out of. I, th- I think you're exactly right. I think you hit the nail on the head. I've, I've made that mistake many times because. It didn't look like anything at first, but then conditions change fast. Uh, Mike Hoskins, and I noticed you nodding your head a while ago. Have you been in a situation like that where you've been disoriented? Yeah, when, when I was worked at Seagullville Fire Department, mm-hmm. obviously we had the federal prison next door. And uh, so we we had fires in, in the cafeteria over there in, in the kitchen area. Well, the problem over there is when you go in the gate, they search the apparatus and everything. So the fire's still burning and everything. Once they clear you go on in, you go on in. So we we get off, get the hose line, and then when you go in, the problem with that is they send you in, they lock the doors behind you <laughs> where you can't get out. So when you get in there and you get so far back in there, then you can't, wow. you know, you can't get out if you needed to get out because they've got the doors locked. Wow. And that, that happens all the time over there. Man. I don't like that. No, I don't like <laughs> yeah. the sound no. of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, um, you worked, ended up working how many years for the fire department? Just a little over 40. It's a little over 40. You barely got started, and then you retired. <laughs> you know, I, I, I tease people that, that don't know me. They'll find out I was a firefighter, and mm-hmm. they'll say, how long do you work? I say, well, I, I was going to make a career out of it, but I quit after 40. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I believe you retired as a captain. Yes, sir. Yeah. I, was a, I was a captain for my last 21 years. Anything you'd want to pass on to the younger generation of firefighters, maybe that are starting their career? I could throw a couple of pointers out here. Uh, from my aspect of everything on the fire service, you need to be a team player, even if you're made to feel like you're lower than whale poop, <laughs> because they're going to agitate you and aggravate you and stuff. Yeah. Uh, if you're not getting agitated, that might not be a good sign. Mm-hmm. Uh, listen to the more senior people and ask for help if need be. Have respect for the DFD and your coworkers, and learn something on every call you make, no matter mm. how trivial or how immense. You may get to a point in your career uh, that you've seen it all and then boom, sometimes literally boom, <laughs> uh, something new will occur. Yeah. This profession is so very visceral and it's not for everyone. You will see, hear, smell, taste, and touch things unimaginable to most people. And it wears on everyone differently. Use your coworkers and friends and religion, if you choose, to keep things on an even keel. That's good. That's good. Words of wisdom there. <laughs> yeah. Accumulated <laughs> over Four decades. Many years. I tell you what, and and I like the part about uh, learning something on every call because I don't feel like I ever came close to knowing everything I needed to know for this job. I had a a gentleman when I initially went to 33s, the the very Mm -hmm. first station I ever worked at, Mm -hmm. he got me off to the side one time and he said, I want to tell you a couple of things about being a rookie. And I said, oh, here it comes. He said, no, he said, first thing he said was, don't get a part-time job. Mm. And I thought, well, where would this coming from? But he said, he said, I see you young guys come on the fire department. You get on here, you're making more money than you ever made in your life. <clears throat> you got 48 hours off, 
So they'll go out and they'll become a painter or this or that. They'll do something, and then they'll get locked into where they'll start buying a new truck and buying a new house. Mm. And buy. So then they have to work off duty. Yes. To and he and that was some stellar advice for one thing, and then the other one was he said, you know what I just kind of went through here. He said just try to learn something on all the runs. You know if it, it doesn't about the structure, about your district. About whatever, just try to learn something on every run you make. Major accidents, medical, this—it doesn't matter. Just try to learn something on every run you make and put that together, and you'll you'll end up pretty good. That is such wise counsel. You know, I've seen so many guys get on this job and immediately go out and weigh themselves down with payments on a fancy new truck and a house that they can't really afford, and then their house poor, and then they are—they're locked into working part time and. You mentioned, um, um, you know, how much you need to learn on this job, and it's only getting more complicated. Now we've got cars with exploding bumpers and hidden airbags, and you've got to know a lot just about the cars you're responding to, let alone the buildings, which are also getting enormously complicated. I was talking about training and stuff and learning. I I was the academy commander for about three years, Uh, me and five lieutenants, we're training all the new recruits at hire on the fire department. And there's some really, really good things that go on in the training division. But honest, honestly, it's just scratching the surface. It's a very basic, very fundamental things that you need to do to just to be a, a recruit or a new firefighter. It, and, and I learned pretty quickly in my career, because I always like to work at busy stations, mm-hmm. the more runs we made, the more I saw, the more mm-hmm. I thought, the more I thought, man, man. So I, I kind of made it my duty to myself for safety reasons and other things just to learn something. Learn something every time you go out and, and keep it tucked in here, keep it tucked in here. And then you can say one of these days, oh, I remember that. I can remember this. I'll do this. I'll do that because I saw this before. And all. Anyway, I just tried to learn something every run I made, even if it was just a – a dumpster fire, you know. It's a good philosophy to so, have. I, uh, you know, I had a, a history at 19s, you know, which actually was prior to you coming over there as a captain, you know. But I remember answering with you and and being around you for you know years and always enjoyed that. But one of the things that I know when you went over to 19s on a shift, and this is mainly I'm saying this for young officers or or people that will become officers at some point in time. I remember uh, some of those outlaws that you worked with over there talking about, um, you know, you had a real passion for the job, you know, and that there were times when, uh, you know, if we have a fire today, I don't know if it was malts or or uh, bluebell on me or whatever it was, but, you know, you, they sometimes they said you would start off the day with, if we have a fire today, malts are on me, you know, and uh, but but that kind of eagerness and passion, I think, really – um, breeds, uh, you know, excitement and, and passion for the job, you know, from if you hear it from the top and then it, it just goes down to the bottom, you know, and, and then everybody embraces that. Yeah, we have a fire today, calf buying ice cream, you know, and, and that's a good thing. I, I never wished anything bad on anyone in my entire career, but I, I just felt like Every fire you make or every emergency you go to, there's something there that you can take away from it. You can learn something from it and everything. And I, you, you talk about buying the bluebell and buying the malts. 
I won't tell you what station it was, but I had one of my crews, which I had some fantastic crews in my career. One of my crews, they would take some chicken bones and put them in a deal and set them on fire, kind of a ritual deal to see if we could pull in a fire. <laughs> you know. And again, we never wished anything bad on anybody, but if we're going to have a fire, let's have it in three districts. Let's have it in four districts. Let's have it where we work. Let's be first in. You know, let somebody bring us water. You rode Squad 8 for a while, didn't yes, you? Yes, I did. I yeah. was thinking so. So, yeah. you know, when you look back over that 40-year period of time, where where did you uh, – I know I felt like I learned how to become a fireman at 19s. You know, I had other places I'd been. Just, we just we had them intermittently, and then I had a slew of fires at 19s in the early 90s especially. And uh, so where do you think that you really cut your teeth? Sixes? Yeah. yeah that, I was there for six years, and that, that was, again uh, – at a time that I, I felt like the, the world was burning down, but mm-hmm. I, I wanted to learn. I wanted to be right. somewhere busy. I, I actually, I'd actually made a couple of transfers in my career just to go to somewhere busier. Uh, that just was kind of my, that's the way I wanted to do that. I wanted to be busy and busy try, to stay was good. On, try to stay on top yeah. of everything. So, but I mean, again, I, I had some fantastic crews, worked at some fantastic stations. Worked at a couple that I didn't particularly care about, but mm-hmm. for the most part, 18 years in South Dallas, probably 10 or 12 years in East Dallas, a little bit in Oak Cliff, a little bit here. It, it all paid off for Well, me. I think the guys coming up today, we don't have near the fires that we used to. I mean, the the the, uh, the dynamics of the fire service have changed so much. You know, Chuck and I got on in 83. Pat gets on in 68. 68. <laughs> uh, from 83 on, you know, we had so many more fires back in the day and and so many less other calls. And now we're our call volume is through the roof and but yet our fire calls are down substantially and uh so we're a lot busier, but it's not because we're putting out fires. And it's just so important that uh when you don't have those on the job training opportunities, <clears throat> you know, that you make opportunities to train and understand. And I, th- I think the department, some of the younger officers in the department anywhere are really trying to make a conscious effort to do just that, which I'm really glad to see. Let, let me revert back to when I was in the training division. I was going to bring this up. That's just scratching the surface. We're just giving the basic fundamentals that the state requires them to have this many hours of this subject and everything to be a firefighter. I, I can't tell you how many times I would send recruits out to the station, and I'd be in the captain of the academy commander. I'd get a phone call, say, "Hey, he, they sent so and so over here to my fire station, and he can't do diddly squat. He can't pull this out of a boot. He can't whatever." And I said, "Time out." I said, "Surely, surely, you've been working long enough, or you know well enough that ninety-five percent of the training these individuals need is on the job." You need to take this individual and teach him this. And teach him. We can only give them some fundamental stuff in training. Yeah, I get so frustrated because I mean, it's like they think they're going to come out there and be a super superman firefighter with just the little stuff that we give them in, in rookie school. And that, that's not the case. They've got to learn on duty, in the field, on the job. That you know, The more you do, the, the better firefighter you're going to be. I think you're exactly right. And I think that's more true than ever because now – the training uh, division really has to focus on the state level requirements, right. uh, and they've had budget cuts, and you know, so they're literally teaching them to get their state certification and leaving out a lot of the stuff that they need to learn 
the Dallas way to do things. You're hitting the nail on the head. Yeah. It, 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 we, we used to have – we didn't have enough time to do everything the state wanted us to do f- mm-hmm. for the most part. And some of the recruit classes that I trained, we actually – tried to cut short their lunch period. They were they were mm-hmm. taking pots and pans home and bringing food in the next day to eat and there so we could get all the time for training and not for you know everything else. It just uh, it was a little frustrating, but especially when these guys would call and say he, he doesn't know or he or she doesn't know anything about this and that and the other. And I'd say that's your job and your crew. You need to take these people out, put them in your wing, and teach them what they need to know. They got to learn it in the field. We can't do it all out here in training. We're just scratching the surface. That's true. And I think that uh, what Mike said was right. I think a lot of our uh, officers nowadays are making a greater effort to conduct station level training. That honestly was something that was kind of lacking at the stations that I grew up in in the eighties. Oh. Uh, so I've been very pleased seeing. Uh, a lot of the people that are, a lot of the station captains that are engaging in this I will say one impediment is the other deal you referred to, though, and that's the call volume. Uh, for instance, at uh, 25s, I mean, engine 25 is as busy as any ambulance. They're, they're out there making over 20 runs a shift on the engine. It's hard to get much training in when you're making over 20 runs a shift on the engine. It really is. True. So. Uh, well, looking back uh, over this uh, career, uh, is there anything you're particularly proud of? Anything there that you'd want to share? Yeah, uh, actually, the the thing I'm most proud of is mm-hmm. uh, I'll give you a little history lesson first. I was on the fire department for forty plus years. Mm-hmm. I have a brother that was on the Dallas Police Department for thirty five years. Oh. I have another brother that worked for the police property room for a few years, then they worked for the EMS division in the fire department for 28 years. The three of us had 103 years of service with the city of Dallas. Wow. And I'm proud of that, but what I'm most proud of is how proud my mother and father were for their three sons. It just, every time I think about it, now my mom just passed away recently, mm. but every time I think about all these careers together, uh, I was a pretty decent firefighter. My brother was an exceptional police officer. My other brother did good at everything he did. And I, and, but my mom and dad, they'd, my dad would listen to a scanner till the wee hours of the morning. And mom would say, turn that thing off, turn that thing off. <laughs> but he would monitor the police and fire because they, they, they knew where we were going. They knew when we were doing things. And any time they had a big deal or heard about anybody getting hurt, my phone would ring. It would be my mom. You okay? I said, yeah, mom, I'm fine. She'd call Mike. You okay? I'm okay, mom. So. Now, this is kind of, if some of you firefighters listen to this, are going to think this is a little bit corny. But I was also proud that I took no sick time. I took off no sick time the last 27 years that I worked. Never took off a sick day. None? None. The last 27 None. years? The last 27 years I worked. Didn't wow. Take. But then I didn't burn my sick time when I retired. And is the guys right? at the station thought, you're insane. You're crazy. And I said, well, I, I wasn't sick. I don't, I don't yeah. believe in taking off sick if you're not sick. Now, yeah. earlier in my career... I might have fuzzed a couple of days and stuff yeah. and took a day off for this and that and the other or whatever, but the, it just got to where I thought, nope, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to report all sick and, if I'm not sick. Wow. So, you know, anyway, did that. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, what a family legacy between you and your brothers. Your parents must have done something right. Oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was uh, – it amazed me sometimes how we all – 
grew up in kind of none of us ever went to jail, none of us ever got in any yeah. major trouble, and all this kind of thing. I was just, uh, I mean, we were just raw bone country kids out in yeah. Pleasant Grove, and yeah. uh, and like I said, when, when Barry Smith talked about the fire department, the more he talked about it, I thought I I'd been working at a freight line, I'd been working at Collins Radio, I'd been. Mm-hmm doing some odd jobs here and there and everything. But when he talked about the fire department, I thought, man, that that sounds so exciting. But then you can do so much good for so many people and get paid for it. Thought, what, what more could you ask for? What more could you ask for? Pat's mentioned Barry Smith more than once, so I thought the listener might enjoy it. Barry Smith uh, passed away a few years ago after a lengthy battle with cancer, but uh, – Barry Smith was retired as a captain. Uh, was it threes when he retired, wasn't he? But he yep. was for years. He was a captain at eights, rode eight engine. Uh, just somebody that everybody that knew him really looked up to. And, uh, he was a Dallas guy. And, um, you know, I was really proud to have known him and, uh, enjoyed a great relationship with him. And, uh, uh, but just, just to give the listener a perspective yeah. on. And he was a, uh, a really gifted athlete. Oh, volleyball yeah. and, well, any of the Texas <laughs> Olympic sports. He yeah. participated in pretty much everything, I think. But, uh, oh, yeah, if you showed up at his fire station, you better bring something to play volleyball because your <laughs> volleyball is going to be played and you're going to participate. Here, when he played with the, this team, the Dallas Rockets, he had probably four or five. NFL teams looking at him to see if maybe – and I right? think the only thing that held him back was yep. his age. Uh, he was getting up there close to 30, and yeah. you know, most of the teams don't have 30-year-old rookies. Mm. But he, he was an exceptional athlete. Any, anything he did yeah. competitive, yeah. He, he was really – got to tell you a story here. <laughs> when, uh, when he was working at Station 11, I used to – I live right down the street, but, but I also – I'd sub there sometimes. And uh, – We'd, we'd go out and uh, pitch quarters, mm-hmm. and it, you'd, you'd have a wall there, and you'd pitch a quarter, and whoever got close to the wall would t- take take the coins and stuff. Well, we're getting hot and heavy, and of course, there's always a lot of agitation going on. And I'd throw in here, say, "Oh God, I, yeah, I can beat that," and he's, "I can beat that blindfolded." And he'd go on and on and on. Well, I threw a quarter, and I swear it was probably about a sixteenth of an inch off the wall. And I said, I got you now, buddy. I'm going to get a belly washer from you. He flipped the quarter up there and it boop. And I swear to God, that quarter jumped up and leaned against the wall. He said, I got a leaner. I'll beat your butt. Yeah. That's very. That's very. He, he had placed some of the guys in ping pong. Mm-hmm. He'd use a scrub brush from the station instead of a paddle and beat them. Boop, oh, boop, boop, boop. He, he was just exceptional. Competitive. Wow. Yep. I love that man. He's, he's yeah. probably one of my best, 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 best friends yeah. of the many that I think I have. <laughs> he was a fine fellow, that's was, for sure. He was. In, in my career, I was fortunate enough, I got four Distinguished Service Awards. And nearly every one of them was kind of a fluke. I was either out of position here or out of pocket there. or mm-hmm. And I had this, why me? Why me? I mean, when when it, when it came down, when I took those awards and stuff and got the plaques on, I'm thinking it could have been any anybody on the fire department. I'll give you an example. Uh, let me see here. In well, in 1978, first and single service award I got. That was we were new, fairly new in EMS, but we were up at the paramedic level, 
and some of the powers that be in the EMS, they said, well, let's, let's come up with a, they chose paramedics of the year. I don't know if y'all are familiar with it. Anyway, well, the first year, Gary Taylor, Jimmy Don Dutton, and myself were selected as paramedics of the year, got the bar, got all this kind of stuff. But then I got to looking and thinking that all three of us worked at the same fire station, not on the same shift, but we all three came from 44 station. And I'm thinking of all these paramedics that busted their butt to get trained and go out here and do this work that's been busier than we ever anticipated. Why me? Why uh, you know? Why these three guys from this one fire station? I, I didn't. It just didn't. I mean, I was. I was glad. I was proud of it. I. I, I worked hard. I tried to be good and do well. And uh, you know, I'm not. I, I just kind of why me. Okay, Pat. And there was a fire on Lafayette Street that you responded to uh, at one time. Can you tell me about that particular uh, rescue? Sure. Uh, it was kind of ironic because uh, I was scheduled to be on the MICU that day, and someone came in, swung in, and they chose to ride the MICU. They said, "You want to ride the engine day?" And I thought, "I'd ride. I'd ride the tailboard of the engine anytime I get a chance." So I was on the the tailboard of engine three and a box came in on Lafayette street, which for any of you not familiar with the Dallas area right now, the Tom Landry center sets where Lafayette street used to be the, the used to be the projects and what have you. But, uh, we pulled up on the scene we're first on the scene, uh, a lot of smoke coming from the apartment. Uh, and we noticed there were a couple of people on, there was a porch over the front doorway and there were two people, and they appeared to be trying to get in the windows of the upstairs part of the apartment. And uh, it was just before Christmas time. The Christmas tree gifts and this and that and other were on fire downstairs. And uh, when we pulled up, I, I, I looked, and, and they told us that there were two babies upstairs. Well, that got everybody really pumped, and the adrenaline was flowing. And uh, so uh, the lieutenant told them to, to lay across lay and what have you. Well, I looked. At where the fire was and how much fire there was, and there was a, the stairs went straight up. These were like uh, two-story apartment deals, living and kitchen downstairs and bedrooms and bathrooms and stuff upstairs. And I thought, well, if I'm going to go upstairs, this was without consult- talking to anyone or saying, hey, Luke, can I do this or do that? I just thought, if there's some babies up there, if I'm going to go, I need to go now up these stairs. So I uh, Slept on Mary Mess and I went upstairs uh, without a handline and what have you. <clears throat> it was a little toasty, very, very smoke-filled. Uh, so I, basically I was going by Braille, got to the top of the stairs. I was down on my hands and knees, feeling and feeling, feeling. Went into a, a bathroom. that I, I found out when I got in there it was a bathroom. Checked that out, checked out the tub around the commode and what have you. Backed out, went into the next room and bumped into a bed. Felt under the bed, all as far as I could feel. Got up high enough to lay on the bed. And when I laid on the bed, I couldn't even reach the other side of the mm-hmm. bed. And I, th- and I realized, and after the fact, it was a king-size bed in this small project apartment. Didn't find anything on the bed. I make it down to the end of the bed, and there was about a two-foot space between the end of the bed and a dresser. And I'm down on my hands and knees, and I'm crawling through there, and I bump into something. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, and then it's dark, and when you bump into something, it kind of gets the adrenaline going again. First of all, I didn't know, is it a child? Is it a dog? Is it a toy or whatever? But then I felt enough that it, it was a child. Picked it up, limp as a dish rag. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, we, we didn't get here in time. I really thought the child was deceased. Uh, and I already had pre-planned in my mind that if I'm going to go downstairs, I don't know how if the fire's progressed or if they're knocking it down, but I'd already told myself if I have to come down, I'm going to have to come down through one of the windows in the front part of the apartment. So I'm, I've got the child in one arm, and I'm kind of like a one-armed man crawling through there. And I found the wall, found one of the windows, and they had these, they're called jalousy windows, these crank metal windows that sometimes they're very cantankerous. I tried to open the first window and wasn't having a lot of success one-handed. And then I hear a muffled voice to my left saying, come down to the next window. Well, I make my way, feel my way down to the next window, and Steve Huey had thrown up a ladder, and he was on the ladder. So he on the outside and me on the inside with one hand. We got the jalousy windows open, and I, I passed the child down, but he was still – I really thought he was deceased. But I passed him to Steve. We were two blocks from Baylor Hospital. They rushed him over to Baylor, and he survived, which made me feel really, really well. Matter of fact, there's been times – I actually tried a couple of times to try to track him down to see where he was and, you know, you know, all that. It was a lot of things ran through my mind because this has been several years. I think he would be in his forties now, but I thought, you know, it, I think it'd be kind of neat to find him if I could. But, uh, and as I, I climbed down the ladder thinking, do I, do I need to make that loop again? Because he said initially there were two people, mm -hmm. two babies, but then he said, no, the other ones were next door. So. Everything worked out really good on that run. It was a, I don't like to call them highlights, but it was a, a little of a peak thing in my career that, uh, I'm very, very proud of it. This, uh, I guess fate just was calling the cards that day and, uh, it worked out really well. That's a, that's a great story. And imagine you, you were supposed to be on the ambulance that day. I was supposed to be on the ambulance that day. <laughs> Got to ride the tailboard as a driver and yeah. uh, things just worked out good for everybody. That's awesome. And, yeah. uh, it's, so unfortunate, but so common that we don't get to follow up. Yeah, it would be fantastic to see, you know, how that young man's uh, life turned out. But uh, that's that's kind of the way it usually is. Is we don't we don't get to know. I'm not. I, I've I don't know how many times in my career. I know I've done it a few times. Is I'd actually you know would have a really bad incident or mm -hmm. uh, maybe a, a a rescue on a major mm -hmm. accident. It took us quite a while to do, and, and I'd. I don't know if I was supposed to or not, but sometimes I'd go to the hospital after the fact, a day yeah. or two, a yeah. week later, yeah. check on them and see. And in some cases, we have people come by the station that we've done a rescue on and what have you, and they'll bring soda waters and cakes and cookies and this and that yeah. and other. So a lot of times I really kind of wanted to check to see, well, I wonder how that person's doing or how's this person doing? Yeah. So I, I've often wanted to also, but, but most of the time did not find out. And, you, you mentioned, you know, occasionally somebody coming by the station and, and thanking you. Uh, my experience was I got a lot of thanks for the things that were the most inconsequential, you know. Uh, and, and, you know, so most of the time you have an incident like that where you really make a, different in, a difference in somebody's life or death. You never hear anything. Never hear. Exactly. Right. But 
If you get their dog out of a sewer that they would have eventually gotten out of anyway, man, they're coming with their friends and their cakes and their cookies. <laughs> I always got a kick. It, it seemed like it happened more times than not. With people would come and bring the cakes and cookies and and thank everybody. And actually, it was the B shift that did the run, or the C shift that <laughs> right, did the run, right. and the A shift was getting all the goodies. And stuff, yep. Which I, you know, and and we are honor bound to eat all of that before oh, they get bet. there. Yeah, you betcha. <laughs> That's part of it. (laughs) Then in 1988, had a smoking area call at Grand and Homes. And we're tooling over there. And sure enough, we saw this smoke and stuff. Well, what had happened, a car, apparently the the two uh, man and woman in his car got in the argument while they were driving. And they ran into a, one of these big, telephone box things and either his foot stuck on the accelerator or something the tires were just spinning on this mm. big Cadillac and smoking up the whole area mm. and I thought well we'll try to figure this out well unbeknownst to me they had sent an ambulance there for the major accident and they were down about a half a block down kind of hiding behind this building and they got on there and he said we, we went by the scene a while ago and the two people they're fighting over a gun oh yeah <laughs> and I'm thinking wait a minute Anyway, we get off the engine, and sure enough, they're on the side of the car. They're tugging and pulling and tugging and pulling, and I'm thinking, gosh, dang. And at first I thought, let's wait the police get here. But then this school bus pulls up and stops, and about 50 kids get out and start walking down the sidewalk. And I'm talking like 40 or 50 feet from where they And I'm thinking, oh, God. And I, I didn't really know what to tell my crew, so I, I just was trying to get the two people's attention so they'd quit tugging yep. and all this kind of stuff and I, I just kept making my way a little closer and a little closer and when I got close enough they were it was a man and a woman they were pulling and tugging she had a hold of the barrel he had a hold of the the, the stock but I could see the hammer wasn't caught mm-hmm. and nobody had their finger in the, the trigger well there mm-hmm. so I'm thinking ah. so when I finally got him to settle down a little bit I just grabbed all I could grab and the pistol just popped right out and I ran back up the hill and but simultaneously when I grabbed the gun I think it was Jimmy Waters and August Galley one of them was in front of the car and the other was in the back they grabbed both of them and took them down to make sure everything was okay And uh, but I, I kind of got I'm not going to mention any names, but I got my butt chewed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's by a, a senior officer who accused me of being John Wayne or <laughs> acting like John Wayne. And I tried to explain. I said, you you would have just had to have been there. He said, no, I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. You, you don't do that kind of stuff. I said, you don't. But he never did take my side of the story. But mm-hmm. I was so concerned about all those kids. I mean, they were just right over there. And, and plus the two people that were fine. So anyway. That was another one of those why meeting. I mean, here we, we get a call to a smoke in the area, and it ends up being uh, a John Wayne deal. So, so anyway, <laughs> and one more, and then I'll be quiet here. 1995, I'm hired back. I, I, I used to use hiring back as when the guy told me not to get a part-time job. Yeah. I, the most time I didn't. Yeah. But when they started hiring people back, that was my part-time job. Yeah. Yeah. Which anyway. was overtime for yeah. the yeah. listener that doesn't know. Yeah. That's what we called getting an overtime shift was a hire back. Exactly. It, anyway, I, I got hired back at Station 2. Mm-hmm. Nice, uh, quiet, semi-quiet station in North Dallas. Probably don't have three or four fires a year mm-hmm. and everything. Well, 
we're sitting there and boom, the bell hits. We go out, have a good house fire. It's supposed to be a lady inside. So another one of these deals, uh, me and Mike, uh, Mike Hiles, we'll go in. We don't have a line or anything, but we're going to go in and try to find out what's going on. And uh, Jason Hall, he was riding engine 35 that day. Me and Mike were on engine 2. Jason Hall did the uh, hose line, but he didn't charge it. But he's mm-hmm. he's playing it smart. He goes in. He's got him a way to get back out, and mm-hmm. he's waiting for him to give him some water. Mm-hmm. Well, we go into two different parts of the house, and me and Mike can't find anything. We barely can keep up with where each other is. And then we hear Jason hollering. Over here, over here, over here. Well, he had found the lady in a bed and stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, but he couldn't get her out by himself. So, mm-hmm. and it took all we could, all three of us, to get yeah. that lady out of out of the house and stuff. And again, I'm thinking, I'm a hire back. I'm working at one of the fire stations <laughs> in Dallas. They don't have that many house fires. Yeah. Why me? Why? Why am I here in this spot? And and I, you know, I think. A lot of people will say, well, it was divine intervention. It was, this, and it may well have been. It may well have been on all four of these cases, but I, I still, I mean, I'm, I'm proud of them. I'm glad I got mm-hmm. to do some good things. But there's so many other people on this department that could have done exactly the thing, and some of them even more or whatever. And I just think, oh. Well, I have an opinion on this, actually. <laughs> I mean, I can't tell why, why you were in those situations, you know, but. Uh, after, post 9-11, you know, the whole public attitude towards the fire service and whatnot changed drastically. You know, and to this day, you know, if I got a fire department t-shirt on somebody saying thank you for your service and whatnot, which is very nice of people to do, you know. But uh, after I went to uh, to New York, um, compliments of Local 58, when we went up to go to the, the mm-hmm. Firefighters Memorial Services, and I, I thought about uh, later um, this the this hero stuff, which I'm really you know uncomfortable, and I don't think that anybody is a hero by virtue of their profession. I think they can do heroic things when presented with an opportunity to do something that they totally didn't expect to have or whatever, and then they respond. You know, they respond to their training or just their gut, their heart, their whatever. Um, but but for whatever reason, they do heroic things as opposed to saying, oh, he's a fireman or a police officer or he's a veteran and he's a hero. It very well may be. I'm, but I'm saying that, that a true hero is somebody that is presented with a situation that where he can either act or not act. And and if his actions, and if he acts, he's a hero in my book. I mean, I was very fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time, and everything fell in place. And uh, and, and, and I, I mean, I, I felt good about doing some of the things I did, but it wasn't that I was looking for it. It, wasn't, it just kind of fell in my lap, I guess you'd say. And uh, like I said, I, I had to... But you did what it took to mitigate the situation. Yeah. You know, how you got there, that's another story. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. you were there and you did what you uh, had to do. My next question for Pat was if he had any lessons learned from his career that he could share with us. Here's his response. Well, yeah, I learned them, but I want to pass them on, especially to the younger people that get on the fire department. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is just some 
advice from me. So you can take it or leave it, but I think it, it works sometimes. Uh, when you're on this, on the job and on this department, you need to keep your mind open and clear until you arrive on the scene and then make decisions based on a little common sense, a lot of safety, and your trust in your coworkers and your training and experiences. Everyone goes home. Very good. Very good. So on a related note, any, any major mistakes, anything that you think, boy, I screwed that up, I wish I had done that differently? Okay. I'm probably not going in the same direction you want me to, but <laughs> for me personally, yeah, yeah. the biggest mistake, when I go back and think about my career, the biggest mistake that I, I, I didn't make it intentionally, but it mm-hmm. ended up being that way, mm-hmm. was I got to where I got so kind of engrossed in my job mm-hmm. and what I was doing and where I was going and where I was heading that I kind of started slacking off with my family. And if I could go back and change anything in my career, mm-hmm. it would be that. Okay. That's good advice. Yeah. That's it, good uh, advice. Indeed. Always keep, keep those priorities in line. It took me a while to realize that it had occurred or was occurring, yeah. but uh, it did, and, and some of it can't be changed now because it's been so long. Right. So. Um, and over the course of your career, um, any close calls? Actually, for 40 years, I was very, very fortunate. I did have, uh, on a ambulance call, D.H. Uh, Jante, may he rest in peace, my partner, mm. and driver on the ambulance. We were uh, headed to an unconscious call on Lafayette Street, which was about two districts out of our district. So he was pretty much in a hurry. We went through an intersection and got nailed mm. with a dark bus. Mm. Uh, that hit just in front of the Donnie's right in front of him in the left front of the wheel. The MICU did 180 degrees. The bumper of the MICU tore a side out of the bus. When all the commotion stopped, I, I wasn't knocked out, but I was pretty groggy. And I looked over it and I swore my partner was dead. I mean, he was slumped over and not moving. Mm. I wasn't even sure he was breathing. Uh, but we eventually some people from around came out and got the doors open, got it, got me out. Then he started perking up a little bit and everything. So it was, uh, I believe if it had been three foot farther towards Donnie, he, he probably would have been killed. And uh, it it was a pretty good wreck. He was, he was going probably 35, 40 miles an hour in a big bus. Mm. So, Jonte, uh, did he smoke a pipe? He, yes, he did. Maybe retired out of 53s. Does that sound right? Yes. Okay. Yes. I, yeah. I remember him. He was Donnie, bless his heart. I, I loved the man. He yep. was a very good paramedic. Yep. But you could put Donnie in an $800 suit, and yep. he still was Donnie. <laughs> uh, he, I, I guarantee you he'd end up burning holes in it. Uh, he almost always had a pipe uh, yep. in his mouth, and, and a lot of times he talk out of the side of his mouth because of the pipe. I, I, I knew, knew a few characters like that. One yeah. of them in particular uh, – Every time I saw him, he looked like he'd been shot with a double-barreled wrinkle gun. <laughs> Donnie would, uh, when we were running out of 44s, uh, nearly every time we'd go to parking, especially in the, in the wee hours of the morning, uh, we'd get through, we'd go out. Well, he'd hop in the back and get on the stretch and go to sleep, and I'd drive back to the station. And most of the time, I'd just back in. I'd go to bed, yeah. and next time we had a run, he'd still be in the back of the ambulance resting <laughs> up. And, and I'd go bang on the door, Donnie, get up front. <laughs> so, yeah, he was uh, he was a very good partner. I really enjoyed him, loved the man, 
and uh, we had some, some fun times in South Dallas. As we continued to chat, the conversation naturally turned towards station life, and Pat told us about some of his experiences that occurred not at the scene of an emergency, but just there with the characters at the firehouse. I was a, I was a fairly new officer and went to the station as a new lieutenant, and I, I I've learned that you you never should change things really if you're like if you're a new officer going to the station, don't go in there and say all right we're going to change this and change that and change that. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to try to see how they handle things, mm-hmm. but one thing that I did want to do at this particular station was I wanted to rotate the cooking. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you have some stations where one person would go buy groceries and cook all the meals and everything. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes I thought that's, that's a good deal, but it might not be a good deal for that individual. And this and that. Anyway, I said, we're going to rotate the cooking. And they said, well, okay, well, one of these young men came to me. He said, he said, Lou, he said, I don't, I don't cook very well. And I said, that's okay. I said, just, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll make it do, you know, we'll, we'll help you out and all this kind of stuff. We rotated around. Well, finally, when it got to his rotation, we're out cleaning up the apparatus and doing everything that we do in the morning and doing all the reports and what have you. And he gets on the intercom and says, it's time for lunch. We walk in to the table. He's already set the table. He's got a plate out there. There were, let's see, six plates there with a half a cantaloupe on each plate, and each one of those cantaloupes was full of chili. What? <laughs> <laughs> and we walked in there, and I looked at that, and I thought, my goodness. And I looked at him. He said, Cap, I told you. Or Lou, said, I told you I couldn't cook. <laughs> we didn't have him cook anymore. So. <laughs> oh. And then uh, uh, another station deal, I just took the call. It wasn't for me. Uh, there was a, a gentleman who was kind of, uh, maybe semi-abused his sick time occasionally. Mm-hmm. And uh, he called in one morning and because uh, we had to get to who was, who was going to be sick and this and that other reported to the deputy chief and all this kind of business. And uh, he said, report me all sick. And then just hung up the phone. And I, thought, well, I knew who it was. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, well, God. And so I had to call him. I said, hey, I said, I got to tell the chief what's wrong with you. You know, you, you, you got a you headache, you got whatever. He said, I've got anal cataracts. What? And I said, cataracts? He said, anal cataracts. I said, I don't know that I know that one. He said, my eyes don't see my ass coming to work today. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. That's pretty good. I can tell you something funny about this station right here. Tell me something about it. And for our listeners... We are in the Dallas Firefighters Museum, which is uh, the old fire station number five for the Dallas Fire Department. So uh, you say you've got a story about this particular fire station? I, I used to swing. I, I worked in this district, and I swung to this station periodically. Mm-hmm. And in the little phone booth you have out here, mm-hmm. one day I moseyed across the street over here, and I got the phone numbers to these two pay phones across the street right there in front of the yeah. fire park, right by the gates of the mm-hmm. fire park. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're standing in the phone booth, you can see the people over there. Okay. I'd dial the number. Somebody would eventually answer the, the pay phone across the street. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, hey, I, how you doing today? They, they said, well, uh, fine. I said, well, look, hey, I, I work for the telephone company, and I'm down the street here. I'm on the telephone pole above the White Owl Cafe 
right down the street here. And I just want to make sure you can hear me okay, if this line's okay. And they'd say, what? I said, I'm, I said, I said, I'm down here on a pole above the White House Cafe. I said, look look down to your south. And they did kind of sort of, and they said, well, I don't see you. I said, well, look, I see you. Just look down to the south, and if you can hear me, wave. <laughs> and they'd wave, and I said, "Well, if you can, if you can hear me real good, wave with two hands." I, I'd have them, I'd have them jumping up and down and waving, and or or, or I'd make a comment, especially if it was a lady answering yep, the phone. Yep. I'd say, "Ma'am," I said, "I'm on the telephone pole down the street here." I said, "That's a beautiful red dress you have on." And she's looking, looking like, "Well, where in the hell is this voice coming from?" And I said, "Just look down towards the cafe. Do you know where the White Owl Cafe is?" Well, just look down to the south. I'm up on a pole there. And if you can, if you can hear me, just wave. Anyway, we, I used to do that pretty, pretty often, just for a little entertainment between runs and stuff. So. Oh man! Yeah. Having a fireman with a little bit of free time is a very dangerous thing. <laughs> So looking back over your career, I know you worked with a lot of great people. Um, was there anyone that stood out that you hold in particularly high esteem? Uh, yeah. Matter of fact, it's, there's a few or probably even several, but I'll give you the top of my list. Uh, first of all, I'd have to say Denny Burris. Denny and I were in rookie school together. Uh, his brother-in-law actually was in rookie class with us. It was like a big family, but Denny has done so much and is still doing so much for the fire department. I have the utmost respect for him. And matter of fact, if you talk to Denny about Pat Murphy, we call I always call him Padre, and he loves that. <laughs> uh, but Denny, <clears throat> Paul Michael Freeman, mm-hmm. had the utmost respect for Paul Michael Freeman. Uh, good chief, good man, good everything. That's, that's the best I best way I can put it and yeah. stuff. Now the the other ones are trailblazers mm-hmm. that a lot of people may disagree with me on this, but I feel very strongly about uh, these people here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andy Enriquez, mm-hmm. Kenneth Parker, and Sherry Wilson. Now, for those of you that aren't up on all the fire department issues, uh, Andy was the first Hispanic the fire department hired. Kenneth Parker was the first Afri- African-American. And Sherry Wilson was the first female. And I know there were several people that followed in their tracks, but I don't think anybody uh, had to endure some of the things that all three of these people did by being the first, the first, the first. So, yeah, I have the utmost respect for those five people and a few other people on down the line. I I can imagine, you know, you were talking earlier about the agitation. Uh, Certainly can be difficult starting this job for anybody. If you were the first member of one of those minority groups uh, back in the 70s, I can only imagine it probably would have been even that much tougher. Uh, the fire department's gone through a lot of changes. Uh, and personally for me, I think most of them were for the good, for the better. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and now I've heard a, a lot of uh, negativity uh, headed towards all three of these people. And that, that's kind of why I have all the respect for them, because they took so much flack mm-hmm. to, to be a part of this uh, wonderful fire department that we have. I want to thank Pat Murphy for being on the show today, along with Mike Otto and Mike Hoskins for their participation. There will be more information about Pat Murphy and other topics that were mentioned in today's show, such as links to newspaper articles, on the website firehousetalk.com. 
If you enjoyed today's show, be sure to leave us a five-star review on your podcast app. Also, I note that a lot of you are listening from your computer, which is cool, but if you're not taking advantage of one of the many apps that are out there which enable you to listen to podcasts like this one while you're driving, you are missing out. Firehouse Talk can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, and many other listening apps. The next episode will feature Creston Whitaker and Byron Temple. I hope you'll be able to join us for that. I'm also planning deep dives on numerous topics relevant to Dallas Fire Department history. If you responded to a major incident where we had a line of duty death or close call and have information you'd like to share about that incident, send me a message. The same goes for historically important incidents like the Swiss gondola incident that Pat touched on. If you don't have my contact information, you can always send a message through the firehousetalk.com website. Until next time, that is all. KKN 377 Fire Department, City of Dallas.